Brothers and sisters, uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony with which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer under the number of the fellow servants, until the number of the fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Verse 12, I looked and he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unique or I'm sorry, its unripe figs were shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord, let us pray. Gracious Father, we come to you now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and by the help and strength of your spirit. And we do ask that you would give us, Lord, help this morning as we consider uh, the great calamity that comes as a result of the writers, we pray, Lord, that we would see that all of these things have been decreed by you and that we, Lord, would learn not to trust in anything that we see here or put our hope in them, but that we would put our hope and our trust in you and in you alone. We thank you for these things in Christ and we pray. Lord, I decrease that you may increase, be glorified in Christ and we pray. Amen. Please, Lord, uh, saints, be seated. <clears throat> Definitely, as you look around, pray for the sick. <laughs> uh, our church has been afflicted in a number of different ways, but God will give us grace and strength. We come now to the fifth and sixth seals that were opened by the victorious Lamb of God. Uh, we learn that the seals are, in fact, the plans and purposes of God that have been unleashed by the Lamb of God. Four seals have already been broken. The first seal unleashes the first rider on the white horse who is carrying a bow. Theologians refer to this rider as conquest. Conquest. The rider is given power to lead the cavalry of violence, famine, and ultimately death. The second rider rides a red horse and he is given a great sword. This rider brings conflict, war, and bloodshed upon the earth. Conquest leads to bloodshed in battle. The third rider brings a black horse and carries a pair of scales in his hands. He brings drought and famine upon the earth. In these difficult times, men will exploit one another for selfish gain. The fourth rider brings a pale green horse and he brings sickness Death and Hades follows right behind him. 
We learned last week that, that the death that the fourth rider is able to inflict is, is limited. It's limited to a fourth of the earth, which is keeping with our, this theme of fours. The four riders ride through the four corners of the world, and their devastation affects a fourth of the world. Uh, felt by all four corners of the world, but inflicted on only a fourth of the world. The last rider is the result of the first three riders. The four riders are the effects of the one of one another. Conquest brings war and bloodshed. Uh, this brings famine and disease and ultimately, finally, death. We are encouraged after all of that, and I pray that you are encouraged, to know that all of these are decreed by God. And we should allow that to kind of rest and permeate in our minds and in our souls, that, that God has done these things. The seals that are unleashed, the, the devastation, devastation that the riders bring, they are all by the decree of our triune God. They are unleashed one by one by the victorious Lamb of God. The scriptures will say to them was given authority to bring both judgment upon the wicked and that they would be used as a refining tool for the faith of the righteous. We, I pray, n- not, but we may have walked away from last week's sermon a little disturbed. A little disturbed when we learn that all of these woes have been decreed by God. Let us remember that God commits no evil. Those woes that are unleashed are judgment against evil. That's important. It's an important distinction. God commits no evil. He unleashes judgment and justice against evil. They are the the righteous acts of God upon the wicked. God will even use these woes to make us ready for glory. And they are working in us an eternal weight of glory as we are being conformed to the image of Christ. As we discussed last week, they are the birthing pains that Christ spoke of that would be signs of the end, but would not yet be the end. Let me also make something clear that I've been saying throughout, I think, all of Revelation, but I I think it needs to be said clearer. Uh, I have been saying that, that these things have been happening since the resurrection of Christ. I don't want to make that um, seem as if, so then we should not expect these things to intensify. I do believe that Revelation is communicating a type of intensification of these things. That these things have been taking place. And towards the end, there will be an increasing um, devastation of these things. There will be an increasing measure of these things unleashed upon the world. I do believe that that is what Revelation is communicating. That these things have been happening. And that there will be, just prior to the return of Christ, an increasing of these things. A kind of climax of these things. The vision of the four first seals portrays the sufferings from the perspective of the decrees that come from heaven's throne to the martyred, those who have died. Brothers and sisters, we've learned that the devastation these writers bring... It has an an immediate application to the seven churches of Asia Minor. To the seven churches, they experience political conflict, religious opposition, 
persecution, uh, famine, poverty, exclusion from society, violence, and even death. These are all the same tribulations that the seven churches were enduring, and that the church throughout all time will endure. But there is an overarching truth that is being communicated. It is that these sufferings are not meaningless. Our sufferings are not meaningless. They are a tool in God's hand to judge the wicked and to refine the faith of the righteous. In the breaking of the fifth and sixth seals, we are given insight into the the way the kingdom of God advances from the perspective of heaven. So this morning, with God's help, we'll consider the fifth and the sixth seal. Let's consider them now. Uh, Number one, the fifth seal. This is verses 6, I'm sorry, verses 9 through 11, verses 9 through 11 in chapter 6. The Lamb breaks the fifth seal, and it is interesting to note that in the breaking of the fifth seal, there are no more horsemen. There are no horsemen bringing forth devastation. Rather, there is a human response to the horsemen. The horsemen have done their damage. And now, there is a response to the devastation. A response to the tribulation that has been inflicted. John sees the believers who have been slain for their grip, their hold on God's word, and because of their testimony of the gospel of Christ, he sees them in a uh, in a sense underneath, listen to this, the heavenly altar. He sees them underneath a heavenly altar. Now, if you've grown up in a tradition like mine, you are very familiar with the the word altar. Your your ears might have even perked up when you heard the word altar. In my previous tradition, uh, it was falsely taught that the altar is right here in the front. That in my previous tradition, it was falsely taught that this place in front of the pulpit was was called the altar. People would be encouraged, come to the altar (laughs) to receive Christ. Uh, Come to the altar to have hands laid on you. Uh, Come to the altar for a host of other, uh, of many other unbiblical things. Uh, This space here in front of the pulpit, here's what it is actually called. Are you ready? It's called the space. It's just anesthetic. Uh, We come into this space later and we will partake of the Lord's Supper. It's just enough space for us to pass each other up and not bump into each other. There are no more altars in an earthly sense. Biblically speaking, uh, in Revelation, John sees a symbolic altar. And it's in heaven. For those of you who don't know, an altar is where the priest would offer sacrifices unto God. Very strange why in, why in my previous tradition we would somehow, for some reason, call this space here in the front an altar when the altar was a space where the priest would offer sacrifices to God. How we made those two connections, I will never know. Now, this would more often be uh, not a blood sacrifice, Or this would more often be a blood sacrifice of an animal. The Old Testament tabernacle and temple had two altars. One in the courtyard for the offering of the slain sacrifice and one within the holy place. 
the altar of incense immediately before the veil of the Holy of Holies is what it was called. Now, the mention of the altar here is meant to communicate the sacrificial nature of those who have suffered for the sake of Christ. But John notes, notice where they are. They're not on top of the altar, are they? They're underneath the altar. Why are they not on top of the altar? They're not on top of the altar because sacrifice has already been offered. They are rather underneath the altar. You remember in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham, in obedience and by faith, uh, believing that his son would live, laid his son on top of an altar that he had made to the Lord. Here, John sees the saints are not on top of the altar. They're not, they're not going to be offered as a sacrifice. Rather, they are underneath the altar of heaven. The allusion may be to the fact that when a sacrifice was offered on top of an altar, blood runs down. And those who are underneath the altar would be covered in that blood. Well, what sacrifice has been offered on top of the altar of God, if you will? It is the sacrifice of the Lamb. It is the sacrifice of Christ. He is our sacrificial Lamb. His blood has run down from the altar and cleansed those who have, by grace and by faith, been positioned under the cross so that we might receive the benefits of His work. That's one aspect of this, I think. The other that I think is, is also likely is that those who are under the altar are symbolically under the divine protection of God. Uh, there's, there's two things that are going on. That yes, we are under the blood of Christ, and because we are under the blood of Christ, we are under the divine protection of God. So the, the blood has run down. These uh, souls, they have physically lost their lives, but their souls are secure in Christ. They are, they are under His divine protection. The, the writers have gone forth, and under the altar, there are the saints of God who are under His divine protection. They are His, and He is theirs. And I think it brings up another, I think, interesting point that, that's important for us to at least consider for a moment. There are those who... who now, we're going to make kind of two points. They are those who in one sense have lost their lives because of their faith in Christ. Their, their blood has been shed because of faith in Christ. But... Does your blood need to be shed for the sake of Christ, for your witness, in order for you to be under the divine protection of God? In order for you to be loved by God, treasured by God, and a saint of God? Well, well the answer is, is no. Does God love m martyrs more than those who just die peacefully in the faith? We might think that God does love martyrs more. <laughs> he doesn't value them more. I don't think that that's also being communicated in Scripture either. John sees underneath the altar those who have been slain because of the word of God, listen to this, and because of the testimony with which they maintain. maintain. Uh, G.K. Beale notes, slain is metaphorical. And those spoken of represent the broader category of all saints who suffer for the faith of Christ, who suffer for the sake of Christ. Uh, when we study throughout chapters 2 and 3, we can see that there is an all-encompassing, all-inclusive call for every believer to overcome. You are overcoming on a daily basis. Not just those who are martyred for the faith. 
Those who are martyred for the faith are, are, are overcoming in the sense that they have not succumbed. They have not bowed their knee. They have not repudiated Christ. But you are also overcoming every single day by holding fast to Christ. You are, you are in concert with the martyrs who have gone before you. You also are suffering, but maybe not by the sword. Not all of us. This is true. Not all of us will be physically killed for our faith. Not all of us will be physically struck with a sword for our faith. And let me encourage you that if you are not killed with a sword because of your faith, there is nothing wrong with you. If you are not killed because of your faith, it's not to say that you don't have faith. It's not to say that you are not challenging unbelievers. Uh, some people might think, well, if I'm not being persecuted, if people are not actually physically after me, then, then maybe I'm not being a faithful witness. Not the case. You are called to overcome in this life every single day. For the help and by the grace of our triune God, we overcome the world, the flesh and the devil. You are in opposition. Satan is opposing you. The world is opposing you. Your own flesh is opposing you every single day, saints. You and I, by the grace and help of God, we overcome temptation, don't we? And we overcome temptation as it presents itself with many different masks. We overcome compromise in varied forms, don't we? We overcome a wide range of physical suffering, don't we? Physical, mental, social, economic, and more. You and I are, are, are being opposed every single day, and by the grace and help of God... We are overcoming. So when John sees those who are under the altar that are covered by the blood of Christ and who are also under the divine protection of God, do not exclude yourself from those people. You are among those who are covered in the blood of Christ and you are among those who are under the divine protection of God. He is yours and you are his. Veal once again says, or again says, whether or not these saints have been literally put to death for their faith, they have so committed themselves to the word of God and the testimony of Christ that they have been, they have come to be identified generally with the suffering destiny of the slain lamb. You are in Christ. You are among those who commit yourself to the word of God and to the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that's you, then you are among those who are under the divine protection of God. There's a loud cry from these, a loud petition that comes from the redeemed under the altar, and it is in verse 10. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The cry from the saints is this, how long? How long, O Lord? Brothers and sisters, haven't you and I asked that question at some point in our journey of faith? How long, O oh Lord? Zechariah 1.12, the same question is asked after the four uh, horses have patrolled the earth and seen that the nations who have persecuted Israel were now enjoying peace. The response of the Lord in Zechariah is that he will remove their peace and judge the nations who persecute his people. This may initially sound like a call for vengeance. It may sound like, Lord, get them, Lord. I'm waiting on you, Lord, to pay them back for what they did to me. 
Brothers and sisters, the saints are where as they are making this petition. They are not on earth and they are not in their flesh. They are in Abraham's bosom. They are in a place of comfort. And in that place of comfort, they are also in the presence of God. Is it possible for someone who is a saint of God in the presence of God to call out for something sinful like revenge? No, because sin is absent in the presence of God. It is impossible for these saints to call out for vengeance. It would be a sinful thing for them to do so, which would be impossible for them to do. The saints have been made pure. The presence of sin has been removed. Their appeal is not for vengeance, but rather it is a petition for the holiness and justice of God to be upheld. It is for, for God to be true and for every man to be a liar. Notice that the prayer goes on, not just how long, O Lord, but, but the scripture says, how long holy and true. The order of the prayer is meant to emphasize the, the petition for God to demonstrate his holiness and his justice by not allowing those who dwell on the earth, which we'll talk about, to escape their evil doing. The same appeal is made in Psalm 79. The psalmist cries out to God because the saints were being persecuted. The bodies were being devoured by wild beasts. And in verse 8, it's interesting that Revelation, we find the exact same phrase. The saints have been persecuted because of their holding to the word of God and because of their testimony. The saints cry out to God who is holy and true. And they simply call out to God to be God. God be God. Be holy and true. Be just. To say that, not to say that God has, is, is not being who he always is. It's, it's, it's not to say, God, be holy and true and just because right now you're not being holy, true and just. We believe that God is the same, don't we? That God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is the immutable one, the unchanging one, the one in whom there is no variation, no shift or shadow. The Lord said to Israel uh, through the prophet Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not destroyed. It is precisely because of the unchangingness of God that the saints are able to appeal to him. They are, they are appealing to the unchanging one. God will not change. Therefore, God will not allow the wicked to escape justice. For their opposition to God and to his church. God will... He will be true. He will be holy. He will be just because he always is and always will be holy, true and just. He is who he is and that will never change. Those who dwell on the earth is most often a reference to idolaters. As a matter of fact, as we move forward from Revelation or in Revelation from here on forward, those who dwell on the earth will now be the phrase of those sinners, of the idolaters. They will be most often now called those who dwell on the earth. Those who refuse to worship the creator, but instead worship created things. Worship and serve created things. They have, in the earthly courts, they, they have cast a wrong verdict of judgment against the saints of God. 
The saints are under the altar because they have been persecuted. They had suffered against those who in an earthly court have condemned them to death. The verdict from the unrighteous to the righteous is guilty. The saints now cry out for the true judge, God Almighty, to overturn their false verdict in the heavenly court. The Lord responds. The righteous judge responds. The one who decreed all things from beginning to end responds. In verse 11, here's the response of God. They're crying out, holy and true, continue to be who you always have been. They have condemned us as being guilty. The verdict they have given to us is death. Please, in your heavenly court, you, God, the holy and true judge, please reverse this verdict. And here's what God does in verse 11. There was given to each of them a white robe. That's the response of God. And they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they have been, would be completed also. Now, contrary to some popular thought, even to contrary to what I may have mistakenly said in the past, I'm admitting to that, white robes does not mean that they have received glorified bodies. You and I will not receive, and the saints of old will not receive our glorified body until the final resurrection of all people at the end of the age. Rather, these white robes, they are this. They are the verdict overturned. The judgment from earth is these righteous are guilty. The judgment from heaven is reversed. They are given white robes. Brothers and sisters, what does a white robe represent? Righteousness. Justification. If you don't realize or know what righteousness means, it means justified. Justified means not guilty. The saints who have been condemned on earth have their earthly verdict overturned in heaven and they are declared by the one true holy judge. They are not guilty. Why? Because they are under the altar. The blood of Christ runs upon them. They are under the divine protection of God. They are not guilty. Clothed in righteousness, not their own righteousness, the righteousness of another, the righteousness of the Lamb of God who's standing slain. It's because of his righteousness that these, slain, these saints are clothed in justified garments of purity. Justified garments of purity. Oh, I do look forward to, by the grace of God, being clothed one day in, and I already am in an already not yet sense. You are already clothed in the justified garments of purity. You are already clothed in the justified garments of purity. In Christ, you have committed no crime. In Christ, you are pure. In Christ, you are holy. In Christ, you are righteous. In Christ, you are not guilty. The verdict from earth may be guilty, but the verdict from heaven is not guilty. Just as Christ was unjustly condemned, unjustly condemned as guilty, 
but rewarded for his righteousness. So Christ shares his righteousness with those who are in him. Though we be guilty, Christ has robed us in his perfection. So what did our Lord promise the church of Sardis? In Revelation 3, 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And John is given a vision of a fulfillment of what has been promised to those who endure. The church who suffers through tribulation at the hands of evil men is given a robe of righteousness and told this. How long, O Lord? How long? The Lord says, just a little while longer. Until then, rest. They were told they should rest for a little while longer. It's the idea of being refreshed. Rest from your labors. Aren't we all looking forward to that one day? Rejoice in the presence of the Lord because work has been completed. There's no more work. Not in the fullness of heaven's joys, they're not yet there. But they are in the place of comfort in Abraham's bosom. And there they are told, rest. You are comforted. Well, how long should I rest? They longed to see the, the redemptive uh, work of God come to completion. They, they longed to see all of, of God's elect gathered. So how long should we, should we rest? Until, God says, the full number of the fellow servants and their brethren, your brethren, who are to be killed until they've come also. When will that be? God does not give a date and time, does he? God says, when all my sheep have come in. God is not like man. Man is counting years, months, and days. And God is counting sheep. He is, after all, the great shepherd, isn't he? God is counting sheep, ensuring that he does not lose one. Dennis Johnson says in his commentary, the days of God's calendar are marked off one by one in the blood of the martyrs. In the blood of the martyrs. The effect of the four horsemen has come upon the world, saints, and the saints have cried out in response. God, the immutable one, has not ignored their plea. Their cry is like the incense in the tabernacle that has gone up before the Lord, and it is a sweet, sweet aroma. God ensures the saints, ensures the saints that he is, in fact, the unchanging one, that he is, in fact, all that he is, and that he will when all the saints are brought in, execute judgment on the wicked. Until then, rest. Hard for us to do sometimes. We want control of everything. What, what do I do? There's uncertainty before me. What do I do? Rest. It's in God's hands, not yours. 
not mine. The sixth seal. Revelation 12 through 17. <clears throat> How long? Just a little while longer. What should I do until then? Rest. There is a cosmic phenomena that is described in verses 12 through 14 and really 12 through 17. And it is communicating this, the divine judgment, the divine final judgment upon the earth and upon all who dwell within. God will reveal his justice by executing the final judgment on the unbelieving world. In these verses, the full number of sheep for whom Christ has died are complete. They've come in. The answer to when, when God will execute justice upon those on the earth is answered. And it is answered in, a, in an emphatic way of calamity. Evil has run its course. When the sixth seal is broken, the world begins to shake. It is an earthquake of unparalleled magnitude. Growing up in the 80s, especially with the earthquakes that were taking place so often, we were warned that because we live here in California, we would experience what is known as the big one. But it would come any day, any time. Matter of fact, I remember watching the World Series, uh, the Battle of the Bay, the Oakland, uh, o Oakland A's versus the San Francisco Giants. And during that game, the TV kind of went out. What happened was there was an earthquake during the game. It caused great devastation. Many of us have seen earthquakes or heard news of earthquakes in different places like Asia and India and Haiti that leaves carnage behind. When God's judgment comes, those earthquakes will appear to be as merely minor tremors in comparison to the devastating earthquake that God will bring. Seven churches, they knew of great devastating earthquakes. You remember Laodicea, they experienced a great earthquake and because they were rich, uh, they did not request any funds from Rome. They decided, will we build our city ourselves? Uh, those who lived in the ancient world, they knew about the great destruct destruction of the city of Pompeii through its devastating earthquake that flattened the city. The breaking of the sixth seal will bring the earthquake of all earthquakes that will result in the final judgment of God. When God delivered his law in Exodus chapter 19, there was a great earthquake that followed. The great earthquake reappears in the visions of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, and it will be the seventh and final bowl in the wrath of God in Revelation 16. This is what we've learned as recapitulation. There will be a telling of an earthquake in 11, a telling of an earthquake in 16. It's the same earthquake from a different vantage point. It's the same earthquake from a different vantage point. Paul, John will tell us the same things that we're learning from a different point of view. So when we see these things again, we're seeing the same things. While this earthquake rocks the world, John sees that the sun becomes black and the moon turns red. The stars of the sky fall. Trees are unproductive and every mountain and island are dissolved. Now, some of us may be uh, kind of overwhelmed by some of these phrases. And let, let me say, over the past few years, I've heard this this kind of inf this uh, uh, this infatuation with blood moons. Uh, you'll hear the false teacher, John Hagee, and he'll have a, a series of blood moons and how they're all leading up to 
Uh, he's a false teacher. If you listen to anything that he says, you will be utterly confused. Verses 12 through 14 are drawing from a variety of Old Testament texts. From Isaiah, Ezekiel, Psalm, Amos, and the New Testament such as Matthew, Mark, and the Acts, just to name a few. In all of these passages, there is at least a mention of these devastations, shaking of the earth, mountains, uh, the sun and moon darkening, stars and heaven falling, the pouring out of blood. All of these things are there, but the verse that most resembles this one is found in Isaiah 34 and verse 4, which says, And the power of the heavens will mount, and the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll, and all the stars will fall as leaves fall from a fig. Now, there is debate over whether or not what we have just read is literal or whether it's meant to be figurative. Will there literally be an earthquake that is so grand that it shakes the entire world to its core? Or is this trying to communicate to us something that is more symbolic? Brothers and sisters, uh, I do believe there's a little bit of both in these verses. I do believe there's a little bit of both in these verses. Now, what we do want to do after considering the symbolism is consider what's the overall point. That's that's what's most important. What's the point of it all, though? Let's take a few minutes to consider some of the symbolism and hopefully make some connections. The first writer brings what? He brings conquest, which results in war. Whenever the term earthquake appears in scripture, it most often denotes chaos between two kingdoms. This great earthquake, then, could be a result of one kingdom falling and one kingdom rising, two nations that are colliding, that are shaking the world because of their war together. It could be that which Jesus says in Matthew 24, nation rising against nation. And then listen to this. Or it could very frankly, very well frankly, be a literal earthquake. Both are plausible. Whether as a result of nations or as a result of literal earth shaking, it's been sent by God. It's God's judgment. As a matter of fact, we'll get to this in a moment. If, if it is two nations, one nation trying to overthrow another, it will be a fool's errand because this will be the final judgment. They will both fall to the great and grand kingdom of God. This is from God. It's from heaven. And that's why the descriptions go from the world shaking. Notice it goes from the world shaking, and then it gives us a view from heaven. Sun becomes dark. The moon becomes like blood. There's some symbolism that's involved there, too. The symbolism is simply this, that God is, is as it were, Drawing the curtain on creation. He's bringing the sun down because the sun will be no longer in need. What is the brightness? Where do we get light from in the new creation? God. We will no longer be dependent upon the sun because the sun will be no more. No sun will be able to outshine the brightness of our God. The moon. The moon turns red like blood. Well, why? The scriptures say in Isaiah 34 that God's sword is drunk with blood in heaven, which is symbolic of the fact that God is bringing this judgment. 
Is the moon literally going to turn red? Possibly. I think that it is more symbolically speaking of the fact that this judgment is from God. God is bringing the sword. The heavens are rolled up like a scroll. And so is the earth. You, you've seen scrolls before that, that, are, that are rolling from the inside. You roll them out. Heaven and earth are being rolled up like a scroll. They are coming to an end. The scene shifts then downward. Sun and moon, then downward. Stars, mountains, islands. And in scripture, those have the tendency to represent human powers. In certain places, they also refer to heavenly powers like angels. But this literally could be stars, mountains, and islands that are falling in destruction. They are being rolled up. Notice the falling of the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the mountains, and the islands. What's significant about all that? It, there's seven things that have just been mentioned. What's the significance of seven? Well, we've learned that seven is meant to, it's meant to encompass a completion or a whole of a thing. In this case, the completion or the whole of creation. All of creation is being destroyed by God. Now, does someone want to lean on the side of a war or lean on the side of a great earthquake? Let me ask you a question. It's the end. Does it matter? It doesn't matter. Are stars literally going to come falling down from the sky? Are you going to survive it? If it is, you're not. Or is it symbolic of something else? It doesn't matter. We're done. It's over. Creation will be destroyed. Who will it affect? John sees it affects kings, great men, commanders, the rich, the strong, slave, and free. Notice the number seven again. Judgment will fall on all of the inhabitants of the earth, without exception. God's judgment falls on all of creation, and it touches all of humanity without exception. When God's judgment comes, men will run and hide from God's judgment. They will run to mountains and hide in rocks. It's an echo of the Israelite idolaters who hid from the presence of God when God's judgment came in Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 18. The silver and gold cannot save them at that day. Grand houses and security vaults will not suffice in the day of the Lord. When God's judgment comes, there will be no more powerful men on the earth. Even the slave and the free, God will be no respecter of persons when his judgment comes. The earth dwellers, they will hide in mountains. They'll try. They'll pray for rocks to fall on them and crush them rather than experience the judgment of God. And they will be like our first parents, Adam and Eve. who, when they sinned against God and went hiding among the trees, because the Lord came and visited them on the on the on that day, or as the scriptures say, in the cool of the day. The visitation of the Lord in Genesis chapter three refers to the judgment of God. Some have misunderstood Genesis chapter three when God comes in the cool of the day as as being the time when God normally came to hang out with Adam. It was some kind of pleasurable time that they had together when they would sip lemonade together and talk about creation. No. Man sins. 
And when man sins, God comes in judgment. And man hides from God's judgment. He hides from his presence. All throughout scripture, the visitation of the Lord, listen to this, in the day, or the day of the Lord, are always referring to a dreadful thing of God's judgment. It's, it's never in, uh, in the day of the Lord as if the Lord just comes to hang out with you in the day. The day of the Lord is a dreadful day. The day of the Lord is a dreadful day of judgment. The history of sin, it ends in the same way that it began. With God coming to bring his righteous judgment. It ends in the same way that it began. The day of the Lord. The sinful man knows his time is up. That he must now answer to God. The righteous judge. Like in Hosea, the wicked plea for rocks to fall on them in hopes, listen to this, in hopes that they would be unconscious when the judgment of God comes. Just knock me out. Wake me up when it's all over. There'll be no sleeping through this. Some of your kids, some of our kids, when they're in trouble, they go into the room and they act like they're asleep. In order to escape punishment, it will not happen in the day of the Lord. They will seek to be invisible from the one who sees all. And from his place of judgment, he will pour out his justice. Verse 17, this is what they say. Hide us, fall on us. Why? Because the great day of their wrath, the one enthroned in the Lamb, has come. Who is able to stand? The great day is referring to the final day. The day when kings will be defeated once and for all. It's the day that Joel spoke of in Joel 2.10. For the day of the Lord is great and who will be able to resist it? Brothers and sisters, the home of the earth dwellers. That's a reference to idolaters. It will be destroyed. I think G.K. Bill does a wonderful job in his commentary of summing up the significance of this sixth seal. Because ultimately we want to say, what's the point? It's just over? Is the point of all of this, as the church is reading this, seven churches and the church for all the time, as we're reading this and we just say, it's going to be done. That's the point. No. That's part of the point, but that's not the main point. How does the churches in Asia Minor, as they're reading this, how are they encouraged? What are they encouraged unto? Beale says the idolaters have committed themselves wholly to something in this creation. They've committed themselves to something political, something economic, some social idolatry. In contrast, Christians who are pilgrims on the earth, whose citizenship is in heaven, the, ungod and the ungodly earth dwellers are at home in this present world. Men of earthbound vision they are, trusting in earthly security. And unable to look beyond the things that are seen and temporal. He goes on to say, the unbelievers idle refuge, the earth must be removed because it has been made an impermanent. It has been made impermanent by the pollution of their sin. But the eternal home of the believers with their God will remain. What's the point? The point is this. As I said last week, the earth has become an idol. All that is within 
is idolized. The earth has been made a God to be worshipped and it will be destroyed because there is no God but God. Nations that people idolize as being everlasting will be brought low. That's why, I don't mean to offend anybody by this, but I mean it as being true, that's why we pledge allegiance only to Christ. Not to some temporal nation. Our security, our riches, our jobs, they will be removed. Judgment comes to the kings who trust in their kingdom. Great men who trust in their earthly greatness. Commanders who trust in their armies. The rich who trust in their riches. The strong who trust in their strength. The slave who trusts in his master to provide for him. And the free man who thinks that he has power to give freedom to slaves. The point is this. To the churches of Asia Minor and to the church for all time until Christ returns. Don't put your trust in anything that is temporary. Because everything that this world offers is temporary and it will be taken away. It will all be destroyed. From the sun to the moon to the mountains to the islands to our, our riches. It will all be removed. Is that to say that, well, then don't enjoy the earth and treat the earth like trash? No, we need to take care of, of the earth. We need to be good stewards, but we don't worship the earth. Does that mean we don't need to worry about our homes? We can just let them go and, and not pay rent and uh, not pay bills? No, you, you still need to do those things. But you can't hold on to them tightly. They can't be those things that you hold so close that I'll never let it go. I'll never let it go. It's when we hold on to things like this that I'll never let it go that God breaks open our idolatrous hands and says, I will take that from you very much. Thank you very much. The seven churches living in a world that was constantly telling them, turn from your faith in Christ. If you turn to Caesar, you'll be spared this persecution. If you turn from Christ, you'll be spared this public shame. If you turn from Christ, John, you can get off this island of Patmos. At every turn, Christians are being told, turn from Christ and turn to something else that is earthly in its place. We are a people who desire order, don't we? There's nothing wrong with order. We love law and order. We want order. We want order in our government, don't we? Last year, when the White House or the, the buildings were, were stormed, we looked at the disorder and we were, we were amazed. How could such a thing happen? Is this going to lead to anarchy? We don't want that. We want order, don't we? We want an orderly system of law. That's why we want our police officers and those who are serving in, in, in public service to act right, to act justly, so there is order. We want order in our neighborhoods. That's why we put up our fences. That's why we lock our doors, so that nothing disorderly can breach the order. 
We want order in our personal lives. We want our finances in order. We want our, our lives to be ordered in such a way that we wake up at a certain time. We go to bed at a certain time. We eat at a certain time. There's an orderliness to our lives. And those things are fine. But when we start making idols of the order, we need, to, we need to understand that order is going to be shaken. In our homes, in our communities, in our government, in our world. And we do all that we can to, to maintain and to stabilize the order so that, so that it is stabilized, so that it stays the same. But how many of you have learned since you've been on this earth that things change? They change when you don't want them to. They change in manners that you don't want them to. They change in ways that you would have never asked for them to change. But things change. So for us making idols out of order, God is saying, I'll do you a favor. I'll rip this world to shreds so that you stop trusting in the earthly order and turn your eyes to heaven's order. We can all begin to trust too quickly in things on this earth as being lasting, as being unchanging. Some of our kids, they're a certain age. I want you to stay that age all your life. They're not going to. They're going to grow up. They're going to, to break your heart at times. They're going to make you happy at times. Things will not stay the same forever. You want our jobs to stay the same. I'm, I'm learning this past week. We had a very big account that said, if you want to keep working for us, this is what you have to do. Things have changed. And now we're faced with, what will we do? Things are not staying the same, are they? We can begin to idolize our country for what we think it stands for, our government for the provision that we think and protection that we think it gives us, our gated communities, our jobs. All of these things are subject to change. Can I say to you, it's good when they change. Because then we're reminded, as I was this past week, that God doesn't change. God has provided for me and my family all of these years, and that won't stop. One employment business is not going to cause our family to start. Things are often stripped away from, from us that the believer can be reminded that we are not to put our trust in those things or their order. But we are to put our trust in heaven's order. And when that happens, what are we left with? When they're stripped away from us, what are we left with? Just our faith in Christ. The only thing that actually is valuable. The only thing that because of the grace of God. That he promises won't change. And that cannot be taken away. This is why we must never have a tight grip on any of these earthly things. Because they can be idols that can be so easily stripped away. And when they are. If our hope is in them, we will be utterly lost when the thing that we have put all of our hope into, all of our trust into, is taken away from us. Have loose grips on things of this world. My wife and I were talking about the other day, even our children. The things, the, the, the people that we love the most, that we would be utterly heartbroken. They belong to the Lord. God's will be done. And when this happens, 
It's so that we can see that God actually holds all things together and not us. We worship the triune God and no one and no thing else. Our allegiance is to him alone. Our hope is in him alone. Our provision is found in him alone. And him alone is our comfort. If you have not trusted in Christ, then turn to him while there is still day. Because there is coming a day. It is the great day of the Lord. And it will be a devastating day of judgment if you are not in Christ. It will be too late on that day. But it's not too late today. God is patient, not willing that any of his should be lost. Dear ones, he is merciful. He is loving. He is kind. He welcomes all who place their faith in him to come under the altar, to be covered in Christ's blood and under his divine protection, trusting that he alone, he alone and his order is where you should place your faith. Let us pray.